Uh, Our Heavenly Father, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we come close to Easter, uh, we pray that you will use a variety of things to be able to teach us of who your Son Jesus really is. Right now in the EU public meeting, we pray that as we listen to your words spoken, we might be able to understand it afresh or for the first time. We pray that when Andy explains it, we might have clear minds uh, ready to understand your will for our lives. Amen. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion? I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, this man has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him, then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into the prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time, Pilate spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But the whole crowd insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For a time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. They will say to the hills, the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things while the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out of him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals. One on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said to them, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people watching and the rulers even sneered at him. He saved others, let him save himself if he is the cho- if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which said, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said. 
since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. catching a lot of buses lately. And on these buses I've started, uh, I know I'm really late to the party here, but started listening to podcasts, um, which weren't invented when I was at uni, I'm sure. Um, I've just got, got into them, and one that I'm really enjoying is called This American Life. Uh, this American Life recently had an issue on bad babies. On children, on infants, on even babies who just seem kind of evil. Uh, Some of these stories are really quite funny, some of these stories are really quite sad. One of the funny ones that had a happy ending um, was this child who I, in my imagination, is played by Stewie from The Family Guy. So his mum, this this kid has only just like learnt to walk, learnt to talk. Uh, He's sitting in, you know how the shopping trolleys have those um, little seats for the babies in? And the mum uh, picks up the child, puts it in and starts going around this small kind of village supermarket. And the first thing she buys is some cat food for the cat. But this child, who I stress has only just learnt to talk, says quite loudly as other people are walking past, no, mummy, I don't want to eat cat food anymore. <laughs> At that point, she didn't know what to say. Genius. Right? This is an evil genius. Now, fortunately, this guy, um, he grew up fine. He grew up to be a comedian or something. And they're all, they can laugh about it now. Uh, but there was one story, a story about a lady called Cheryl, which kind of caught my attention as I was thinking about this passage. Cheryl has three children, but uh, when her first child was born, I mean, we, at first it was entirely normal, but then when the second was born at age two, he just became really bad, like really bad. Like he, at any opportunity, he would try to hurt his brother. And that, I mean, two-year-olds are renowned for being difficult, terrible twos and all, all that. Um, but this was different. This was permanent. Uh, at age seven, he tried to kill his younger brother for the first time. The mum was standing nearby and they're, they're all in the pool and he holds his little brother under the water until he kind of almost stops flailing. For, fortunately, his mum sees it and is able to intervene in time to get them out. And as, he's trying to, as she's trying to kind of calm down her second-born child, who's become like with inches of his life, right, uh, the only thing that her first-born son says is, you're a bad mother. Uh, this kept on going. Twice he's tried to suffocate now um, his younger brother. He, uh, there's now a younger sister who he's thrown across the room. They really just don't know what to do with this child. He just seems bad. Now, these parents love the, all their children. Um, you, can, you can hear it when they talk about uh, what's going on. Uh, they love all their children very, very much. Um, it was a fantastic um, quote. I, I looked up their blog afterwards where she writes, When we got pregnant with this child, my husband was scared but thrilled. He read to my belly. He rubbed it when I would worry. He loved this boy from the moment that he knew he was ours. And yet this family is afraid of their own son. 
Uh, the husband has to go off to work, is afraid to leave them alone. Uh, he found out at one point recently, uh, because only aired a week or so ago, he found out that this, he'd pushed his mum down the stairs. Right? And they're just worried what they'll do when this child is no longer seven and a half, but is bigger. And this husband, who loves his wife and loves his children and loves his son, wants him out of his house because uh, he just can't trust him to be alone. Uh, it's, a, it's a tragic story. It's a fascinating story. What particularly got me, though, was in the interview, Ira Glass, who's one of the best interviewers, I think, in the, in the world, uh, asked this question. And it was just after her son broke her nose. Right, so she was bending down to, to hug him goodnight. And suddenly he lifted up his knees and smashed right into her face. And she doesn't think he meant to break her nose, but he certainly meant to hurt her. And, and when the blood started coming, it was clear she was in a lot of pain. He just laughed. And after this interview asked, since your oldest son broke your nose while you were hugging him, what's it been like to hug him? And Cheryl writes, uh, said this, it's very difficult. He has since, that is the son, has tried to come into my bed and he'll say, I want to snuggle, I want to snuggle. And it's something that I have to choose to do because it's not a natural reaction any longer. I have to actually make the conscious decision to hug and love the child. I've read articles, she continues, about children like him and that their best chance at life is to continue to get that unconditional love. And so my husband and I make a concerted effort to grab him and hug him and love him despite everything that we've been through. But I can tell you as a parent, I had never expected to have to force myself to hug my child in the morning. Uh, this grabbed me on the bus because that is a tragic, sad picture. And there's also something beautiful in it. It's tragic and sad, but there's also something beautiful in it. And I want you to hold that image in your head as we look at another quite sad image, the image of a failed revolutionary hanging half dead from a Roman cross with his friends who had, who had legitimately thought that he was God's chosen saviour who was going to come and liberate them. Well, they've run off scared and he's just hanging there, defeated this image of a sad, failed revolutionary. Could this possibly be the image of a death that changed the world? And I want to suggest that it can. And there's three things I want to talk about. Firstly, that this world is to die for. This death shows... If you're writing notes, feel free to write this down. If not, that's fine. This world is to die for. Secondly, this death shows that we sin but God suffers. And thirdly, this death shows that God is a God of beautiful, tragic love. Um, my brother and sister made a uh, kind of terrible error on one family holiday. Um, it was really, it was uh, my, my, me and my brother's fault, it wasn't my sister's fault. Uh, she was too little. We were on holidays, family holiday, we were quite young. And we walked past this museum which looked interesting. It was a torture museum. Uh, in fact, it turned out it was very much an anti-torture museum. And the point was, you went in there and it catalogued all the disgusting ways that human beings are thought up to cause degradation and pain to each other. And we, being you know, adolescent boys, thought that was cool and we dragged our poor helpless sister in after us. Uh, 
we were only in there for minutes. Our parents had gone to kind of get a coffee around the corner quite sensibly. I were only in there for minutes and we just came out and there was nothing cool in there. There was nothing even interesting in there. There was nothing informative or educational in there. We were just sick to the stomach. I've, I've never had such a vis- visceral kind of repulsion to humanity's cruelness to each other. Apparently our faces were just white as we came out and had to explain to our parents why we didn't want to go back. Uh, now, the cross, the Roman cross is probably one of the simplest and most effective ways that human beings have thought out to torture each other. The whole idea of the cross is to postpone death as long as possible to cause the maximum shame and the maximum amount of pain. Uh, The way it works, uh, as far as we can tell, is uh, they would take the victim, strip him naked, uh, whip him within an inch of his life and then they would tie him somehow to a piece of wood that would have to carry this wood out and eventually he would be taken, in Jesus' case, it was outside the city because you don't want to do this in your backyard, uh, outside the city on a, on a hill and they, they, they lift you up and affix you to a vertical pole. Um, sometimes they would add nails into that picture. Uh, we know from uh, his uh, archaeological find, for instance, there was a, a guy who'd been hung up in this way, the nails, which would speed up the death a little bit. Um, otherwise it could last for days. In, in, in Jesus' case, we know it lasted hours. And the thing is, you may not be very aware as you sit here of your breathing, of the kind of the effort required, the minimal effort, the the easy effort required for your diaphragm to uh, constrict or relax and open up your lungs. But as the victim hangs there, they become very aware of that effort. Because as exhaustion and dehydration and the effects of blood loss set in, you can no longer get the effort up to breathe. And after hours or even days, the victim just dies of exhaustion and suffocation. That was a horrible, horrible way to die. And the Romans reserved this quite sensibly for the worst of criminals. And by that, a special type of criminal, really. Like, if you were a Roman citizen, for instance, you normally, under normal circumstances, couldn't be killed in this way. In fact, I think it's Cicero who writes that a Roman citizen shouldn't even think about the cross, let alone uh, talk about it or uh, be crucified, certainly. Um, They reserved this for your failed revolutionary, the type of person you needed to make an an example of in front of other people. And here Jesus is, a failed revolutionary hung up on a cross. We know the date, 3rd of April, the year AD 33, under the order of Pontius Pilatus, uh, Jesus was crucified. And it looks like a horribly tragic event. Certainly, his disciples thought that it was a tragedy at the time. Uh, The story of actually how he ended up being crucified in this way is a very interesting one. We heard some of it read out here, kind of a, 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 a kind of coming together of tensions between the Jewish puppet government and Rome and the jealousy of other religious leaders all kind of conspired. But the main problem, the main reason why Jesus ended up on the cross was Jesus himself. His disciples watched in horror as he walked into the trap laid for him in Jerusalem and proceeded to challenge the authorities, to challenge the religious leaders, to challenge everything in a bizarrely underprepared revolution. No weapons, no support. He waltzes straight into Jerusalem and his disciples run away as they 
kind of from, like, as from a sinking ship, you know. They see what's coming. How could this tragic death possibly, possibly be anything other than that? A tragedy. And yet it was only after that his disciples realised that that death had changed the world. That death had changed the world for three reasons. And the first of them is, I have a slide for this, technology. This world is to die for. This death shows that this world is to die for. Do you know there are forces bigger than any of us in this world? There are forces bigger than any, any one of us in this world. There are markets, economies and fashions which conspire to, I think, cause a huge amount of pain and suffering. Why is it? I mean, even taking natural disasters, for instance, why is it that it's always the poor people who drown first in the floods? And almost always is. Indeed, if, if scientists are right and we're heading for some colossal climate disaster, I guarantee you it will be the poor nations, the ones most vulnerable, the ones least probably to blame, who feel the effects of that first. Even in natural disasters, there seem to be these forces bigger than any one of us. And I know from detailed study over many years of the West Wing, all seven seasons, that even when you take the most powerful fictional character in the world, there are some things which are just beyond even him. There are some problems in the markets. And everyone just points the finger at everyone else. You ask the politicians, well, why can't you do something about these things? And they say, well, the polls and the markets and the economy, blah, blah, blah. But then you ask the people, why can't you do something about it? And they say, well, the politicians don't lead us properly. It's like a stampede. Do you remember the scene in The Lion King? Maybe this is too young. Have you seen The Lion King? Okay, good. All right. (laughs) Every now, I'm not that old, but every now and then I reference a movie and people are like, Um, The Lion King, you know the stampede, it's this bizarrely malevolent, suprapersonal force. No one animal is to blame, but if you get in its way. And there are forces like that in our world. There are economies, there are fashions. What, What makes us all victims to fashion? Well, fashion. These forces are bigger than any one of us. And Jesus, for a moment, seems like he's a victim of just these types of forces. Do you know the expression to wash your hands of something came from this event? When Pilate, it's in a different gospel, when Pilate decides, even though he knows Jesus is innocent, even though he knows that, he decides that he should die. Why? Well, because there's the people and there's this threat of going above his head to Caesar and being made out to be a traitor of Rome and what can I do? I'll just kill him. No one is to blame in this story and yet everyone is to blame. These evil forces, which the Bible describes as not morally neutral, as evil, as bigger than any one person and sometimes very spiritual forces, they conspire against Jesus and for a very short moment it looks like they've won. It looks like Jesus is the hapless victim of forces beyond anyone's control and yet there is a trap laid in Jerusalem and it is not a trap for Jesus. That trap he knows well and truly about. The evil trap in Jerusalem is a trap for evil. Because precisely at the moment where evil forces think that they've got God's Son, the Messiah, cornered, is precisely the point where he defeats them. Because you see, on the cross, if Jesus is to be believed, he is defeating evil once and for all. 
He is disarming, the scriptures tell us, the powers and authorities that look like they have the upper hand. It's as if all the evil in the world comes to a point, comes to a pinnacle, comes to a climax. What more evil could there be than to crucify God's own son? And yet in that moment, through that non-violent act, Jesus is defeating them. Here's how it works, and this is, this is a huge topic. My mind has been blown this week reading up on this topic, so I can just share two seconds of it. Who has the final word on this world? I don't need to tell you that this world is full of evil forces. You live in this world. But who has the final word on this world? Is it the corruption and the hate and the evil? No. Because on the cross, Jesus declares that this world is to die for. Even at the moment where evil is at its worst, most pointy, Jesus dies for it. And that means this world and you, by the way, are to die for. He names evil for what it is. A parasite, a pathetic corruption, but not the final word. And so I want you to take back out of your memory that that image of the mother embracing the child, nose bloodied, because that's what God is doing on the cross. He is embracing the world in unconditional love because he will not let violence have the final say on this world. This may be all kind of too highfalutin and big picture. Let me make it personal. Just for a second, turn to the person next to you and answer me this question. Is it... I've always wanted to do this in a lecture. Is it ever right for a guilty person to go unpunished while the innocent suffer? Is it ever right for the guilty to get off scot-free while the innocent suffer? Two seconds. schedule. What do you think? And that's enough. That's good. I've got you thinking. I was talking to a philosopher this week. I like doing this. It makes me feel smarter or something. He said that the most difficult, one of the most difficult subjects in ethics for him is forgiveness. I mean, think about it for a when I do something wrong, which I would never do, no, I do. <laughs> when I do something wrong to my wife, right, the closer, I tell you, the closer you live with someone, the more you become aware of the things you do wrong. Because right? they're there, they see it. <laughs> when I have to ask my wife to forgive me, I'm asking her to do exactly that. For the guilty to go unpunished while the innocent suffer. She's the innocent one. She hasn't done anything wrong. I've just done something wrong. 
and yet I'm asking her to let me get off scot-free, effectively, for there to be no further retribution, for there to be no further mention of justice, for there to be no, nothing more said between us. She says, I forgive you. And that's a really big thing, so big that she's actually started saying and asking me to ask for forgiveness, not just say I'm sorry, but actually ask for forgiveness because forgiveness is such a big thing. Forgiveness is difficult and I hope you struggled a little bit with the concept that a guilty person might actually go free while the innocent still suffer. And this is such a big idea, this idea that we sin and someone else suffers. This idea that we sin but God suffers. That God actually set up a metaphor in history because he knew he'd be needing it later. Here's what I mean. All right? He instituted a sacrificial system in the Old Testament. A metaphor. And here's how it works. You do something wrong, something really bad. I'm sure you would not do anything this bad, but something really bad. Something maybe even deserving death. And you take this animal who you've loved and raised and invested and fed, who you have a personal connection with. They may even have a name. Right? And you take this animal and you go to temple and touching it you say, the punishment meant for me, sorry, big guy. And then you kill the animal and you're confronted with the destruction that you've caused and God says in, in Leviticus 17.11, the life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you. So it's a construction, it's an artificial metaphor. I have given it to you to make atonement or make amends for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And this horrible metaphor, like, if you've got a little bit of an animal lib kind of bent here and you find this horrific, good, don't fight that. It is horrific. And it stresses the horror of the guilty being punished while the, uh, of, of the innocent being punished while the guilty go free. This is what happens when we ask God for forgiveness. There is a cost And taking this metaphor, Jesus understood his death to be kind of like that, but different in one very crucial respect. Whereas you supply the animal in the Old Testament metaphor. On the cross, God supplies himself. And he absorbs all the pain and all the suffering that you've caused, that we've caused, in himself. We sin, God suffers. There are many other images that the Bible uses to interpret or describe what's going on in the cross. Some of them are easy for us to hear. The idea of redemption, so paying someone to release a slave. We're we're in bondage to sin, we can't get out, God pays for us to be released. Or the idea of a a court decision on us. God declares us okay, (laughs) declares us free. Uh, Some of them are a little bit more prickly to our modern 21st century is the idea of us turning away God's wrath with a sacrifice. It kind of rings a bit weirdly in our ears, but let me just say this. Don't think of an angry, bloodthirsty God who wants blood and doesn't care if it's an innocent third party. Right, that is a mockery of the Christian faith. Because the Christian faith is not that some innocent third-party bystander called Jesus suffered, but that God himself suffered. That man on the cross is no ordinary person. That is God himself, God the Son, dying for your sin. We sin, God suffers. And so whatever you may think of the Christian gospel, whatever you may think of this image, know that this is the pinnacle and it's got much more in common 
with a mother bending down and hugging her child who's just broken her nose with the unconditional love of that embrace than with the angry, bloodthirsty caricature. We sin, God suffers. And finally, this tells us, and why this event changes the world, this tells us that God is a God of beautiful and tragic love. Now, I don't know where you stand at all. I mean, you could be anywhere on the, on the spectrum from thinking that Jesus is the Son of God, hallelujah, or thinking that he's a dangerous, deluded fool who's kind of led millions astray. But whatever you think actually about him, whether you think he's right or not, and whatever struggles, I think we all struggle at different points with the, the Bible's story when we see God do things or not do things that we think he should or shouldn't do and we, we wonder what God is doing and what he's like and can we trust him? Know this, this is the climax. This is the point at which we see truly what God is like. And at this point, God is a God of beautiful, tragic love. Keep in mind that image of the mother, that image of the one suffering to give the kind of unconditional love which no doubt in the story that child needs if he's going to have any chance of a normal adulthood. But here's the, 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 the kind of the rub. Here's the, here's the thing. The difference between love and violence, apart from the obvious, is that whereas violence forces you along, love calls you to respond. There is nothing in that mother's embrace of the child which forces him to become a worthy recipient or forces him to be able to be loved, to receive that love. He, we don't know. I mean, this podcast aired a couple of weeks ago. He may well grow up to be a monster. And there is nothing in God's love There is nothing in this story of a failed revolutionary hanging from a tree which forces you to be loved. He has made the first step in reconciliation with you. The rest is over to you. A few text messages have come through. If you have a question that you'd like to ask, uh, do send it through to the number on the screen. Um, But also, if we don't get to that question, then at least I'll make sure that I pass it on to Andy and we get back to you after the public meeting. Uh, So, a couple of questions for you. Firstly, you mentioned that when uh, people died on the cross, typically it would take days. It was part of prolonging the torture. You then said that in the case of Jesus, it only took a few hours. Um, Now, why surely this could mean that Jesus... How can we know that Jesus really died if the torture method was designed to take days but Jesus died in hours and then was taken down from the cross? Yeah, good question. Um, So it varied, as did the methods, and the nails really sped things up. Um, But actually, interestingly, we're told um, at the end of the day they needed to get the bodies down because it was um, the Shabbat, the the Sabbath. They they couldn't have um, them hanging up there over the weekend. And so they come to break the legs, which is another way of speeding it up, of the two other people crucified with him. They don't need to do that for Jesus, two reasons. Firstly, uh, he's already dead and they know that because they drive a spear into his side and um, out comes what looks like blood and water, uh, which we can be pretty confident means if if his um, blood is separated to that point, he's been dead. Uh, The other reason they don't do that is because prophecy said not one of his bones will be broken, which reminds us that God is in control of this entire process. So, yeah, it did vary. It's not, I think we've got to be careful when we describe the cross to make it seem like Jesus has suffered in this moment physically more than any other human being has suffered. 
which is just not the Bible's claim. The point is that he is the Son of God suffering. It's who Jesus is that makes this the most important death ever. Okay. If you've got follow-up questions to that, please send them through. Uh, another question I received was about the powers and authorities that Jesus disarmed, and a, and a similar point of view is uh, you were talking about how while Jesus was the main reason why Jesus died and that he, he was willing to go into Jerusalem and face the authorities, mm. um, but at the same time you spoke about how it was the evil forces... Well, the question is, is it the evil forces? Is it the humans? Is it the human authorities... Who is responsible for Jesus' death? And, and I guess then the following question is, who did Jesus defeat? Did he defeat the evil forces or the evil people? Is it evil as a force or evil as people? Yeah, sure. Um, probably E, all of the above. Um, or D, all of the above. <laughs> um, so, the moral responsibility lies with the people who crucified Jesus. Right? It's an evil act, but as so often happens in uh, God's dealings with humanity, what Humans intend for evil, God intends for good. So there's kind of, that's why I mean all of the above. It is Jesus' plan, it is God's plan, prophesied for hundreds of years beforehand, but it's also, um, there's a real responsibility in every single person involved. Um, in terms of who Jesus defeated, the Bible talks about him defeating death, which is pretty big. Uh, death is defeated. Um, the Bible talks about these powers, which it doesn't really go into much detail about being, kind of being somehow disarmed, uh, on, in his death and, and resurrection. Um, these powers uh, seem to be personal, big, kind of intersect with persons as well. So, in answer to the other part of the question, um, the powers of the Roman Empire are kind of incorporated in there, but also the powers beyond that of Satan, of evil. And they're all kind of complicit and it's very hard to separate them, which is a long-winded way of saying, I'm not sure, which is why I'm going with E, all of the above. Because uh, Jesus defeats death, he defeats his enemies, he defeats death, and in doing so, uh, we can have liberation from death ourselves. Okay. Uh, put up your hand if you'd like to follow up to that question. Otherwise, I've got one more and then I'm still willing to take more questions too. Okay, so the question is about forgiveness. And you were talking to your philosophical friend mm -hmm. uh, about this uh, idea of forgiveness. And I guess the question is, both from an interpersonal relationship, uh, mostly from an interpersonal relationship thing, is there a situation where the hurt is too great that forgiveness is an improper response? Uh, it's very important to distinguish, and I, I don't know if this is... I'm going to assume this is not coming from a philosophical point of view, that it's personal. Because mm -hmm. uh, I've had people do things to me that I've, frankly, found unforgivable. Um, and I'm sure you have too. What I think is a large confusion... Is, is between trust and forgiveness. So there's people that I've forgiven, although it's taken a long time, and something I've had to repent of not forgiving them along the way, yeah. uh, and yet you're able to forgive them but not trust them. And the great mistake that a lot of people make is by trusting people who are not trustworthy. And so that's the first distinguished kind of thing I want to make. The second thing is, yes, there are things which are impossible to forgive except that we've been forgiven of far greater things first. And that's where the, that's the energy source, that's the power for forgiveness in these situations. It comes from knowing that as we have been forgiven by our Father in Heaven, so we will forgive other people. You will struggle with this till the day you die. And so the proper response as a Christian when we find it hard to forgive is to repent, to say, I'm sorry, help me to be more forgiving, to remember that when I see this person who's just disgusting and horrible to me, that's probably how I look like to God a lot of the time. And yet he has forgiven me. 
So I don't want to kind of, it's mm. not easy. <laughs> but if you've been forgiven much, then you'll also forgive much. And that's the process we need to walk through. That's, that's the challenge of the Christian walk. If you'd like to, that, that's a very personal mm. thing and this is not a very personal context. I'd love to talk to you more about that, um, whoever is answering the question. Or, yeah. Yeah, and I guess on that, will you be able to spend a bit of time? Yeah, yeah, I'm hanging out. I've got nothing better to do. Yeah, great. So, a couple... (laughs) I only work one day a week. I'm a minister, right? (laughs) Um, If if you... (laughs) I was about to say, if you have nothing better to do, come along. (laughs) 